I think so many people, and I used to think this initially as well, it's like, hey, once you get product market fit, then you've got a good idea. And it's like, that's not the right way to think about it. You really need to get all four fits to work. So market product fit, market model fit, model channel fit, and channel product. And if you get all four fits to work, then you've probably got what is a good company or, or a company that can really scale over a long time. That's Jared Webb, the founder of Blink, and this is Wild Hearts. <laughs> Welcome back to season three of Wild Hearts. I'm your host, Mason Yates, and this is a podcast dedicated to revealing the secrets from the founders looking to change the world. Today, we're joined with the founder of Blink, Jared Webb. He'll share the top insights he took away as an early operator at Uber Eats, the product lessons he acquired from building over 30 applications for fun, and how those lessons about virality, the intersection of market, product, channel model fit, have all been applied to create Blink. To set the scene, the simplest way to think about Blink is that it's a simple digital business card. However, by the end of this episode, that's where your imagination ends and you need to think bigger. Blink is completely reimagining how we connect with each other. And without further ado, here is my interview with Jared. Dude, we're back. Yeah. Wild Hearts is back. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, man. Yeah, super pumped to get on this call. I know in your heart that you're an engineer, but I want to start off with setting the scene on why you decided to join Uber of all companies. Yeah, for sure. So I studied software engineering at uni. I really love to build things, but I realized at the end of that time that I didn't want to be a full-time engineer. What I really wanted to do was really understand business strategy. And Uber was, I think, the perfect place to do this. Uber Eats had just launched and I was going to join that in what I think is a fairly complex business model. It's a three-sided marketplace. So you have restaurant customers, driver customers, and then kind of like the eater. The eater. Yeah. Us. <laughs> the eater, the <laughs> consumer, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that was really great. You know, got to learn a whole bunch of software business strategy. And on top of that, I really liked the team when I interviewed. And so, yeah, really, I, I just wanted to learn a lot. I want to maximize my learning right after uni. Did you always have an instinct for wanting to learn business or was there a moment in time where, you know, this could actually be quite helpful? Yeah. I mean, I've always been interested in business and business strategy. Yeah. Like I, I was really interested in tech and then I realized that, you know, at some point I probably wanted to start a company. And so, you know, learning about business probably helps with that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think having a combination of tech skills and business skills really goes a long way. And what stood out, was it, was it Uber's or more specifically Uber Eats' model that attracted you to wanting to join them? What stood out to you and why did you think you could learn a lot there? Firstly, I really liked the product as like a user. I thought that Uber was a really important product as well as like Uber Eats had like kind of just launched. And so I was really interested in those two concepts. I really liked the people I interviewed with. Obviously, I really liked TK as the founder. And I think on top of that, it was a really fast, high growth company. And in Melbourne, when I joined, there weren't that many exceptional US companies hiring people in, in Australia. And this is one of the companies that was doing that. And so it just made a lot of sense to join. You mentioned you wanted to maximize your learnings. What were some of the, the key learnings? Yeah, so some of the key learnings I think were, number one, I learned a lot about culture. I think Uber went through a lot of cultural shifts. And so I learned like a ton about how to deal with growing pains and, and what to do and what not to do. So I thought that was like really, really interesting. It, it really helped me set the standard for what a generational company kind of needs to get to in terms of the output quality and sort of the people that, that you hire and, and how you work. And so I think that was like another lesson. And then I, I learned a lot about, you know, how you should kind of give tasks to people 
or, or give autonomy to people and, and to see how that runs. And so one thing that Uber did really well, and I think this is fairly ingrained in the culture, especially early on, was giving people a lot of autonomy and responsibility to kind of just spread their wings and, and try stuff. And so when I joined, I was like quite young in the team and I was able to learn a whole bunch of stuff. And I was able to work on some really awesome projects like kitchen collectives, which was like shipping container kitchens inside of a warehouse, you know, to prepare for like some sort of drone delivery future or whatever we were trying to do. And so it was awesome to work on a lot of these projects. And so I think Uber taught me a lot about kind of how, how you should do that as a company. At the time, how many people were in the Melbourne office and what was the culture like across borders, I guess? And you mentioned autonomy was really important in Uber's culture. Were there any examples beyond the one that you just mentioned that really stood out to you that made this such a generational culture at the time? Yeah. So when I joined, I don't know how many people were in the Melbourne office. It was like, you could probably count them on one hand or so. So there weren't that many people. And I think the culture very much was Uber was not the leading player in, in Melbourne. Uber Eats had just started, so it, for Uber Eats specifically, and Uber Eats had just kind of started in a few cities. So Melbourne, I think, was the fifth city that it launched, and it was the number one city in the world at the time. I think it still is number one for Uber Eats, but the culture was very much like, this is a, a small project within the Uber ecosystem, and it was kind of a test. It was like, hey, we've got drivers on the road, can they also deliver food? And so it was kind of an experiment. And I thought that it was really fun because, you know, you got to kind of try out a bunch of things and it felt like, I feel like what probably early Uber rides days would have been like. So that was like really, really fun. And then in terms of autonomy, when I joined, there wasn't really much of a focus on the restaurant side of the business. And so when I joined, a lot of the stuff that I had to deal with was trying to figure out, well, what is the restaurant side of the business? Do we have an account management team? Do we have some sort of engagement? How do we get product feedback from restaurants? And I thought that that was a really exciting thing to try to, you know, to try to solve. And so, you know, I got a lot of autonomy to try to figure out what worked and what didn't work with that. And I think that that was just a great learning experience, especially for a young person who wants to learn about business strategy. And on the side, you were building applications. And I think you told me once that you had built like 30 apps, something <laughs> ridiculous. How are you keeping that engineering spirit alive while working in effectively a startup with inside a massive company? Yeah. So I feel like I've been, I've been working on different projects since first year uni, right? So mm. it's not like it just started there. And I've been working on, on a ton of apps or different like kind of business model ideas and just kind of drafting them up on Google Docs, or whatever. That was your starting point? Like idea, plan out the idea maze on, in like a, a Google Doc? No, I mean, not, not all the time, but like sometimes you're like, well, I can't build an app for this. this. Mm. <laughs> and so like, mm. uh, so, but sometimes it, it was just like making a tool. And I think like, fundamentally it was just a really fun thing for me to do so some people would play video games or some people might like watch tv series i like built apps and that was just really really enjoyable for me to do it's kind of like building lego and i think the better you get the more it just feels like quite natural and, and quite easy and so built like a number of apps blink wasn't the first app i built i built a ton of others before it and i guess yeah blink was the first one that i thought had real potential it, it had some real viral traction to it that's kind of what worked with it what was the the worst app that you that you built? <laughs> the worst app. I built a number of terrible apps. God, I, I don't know. I mean, I built like an anonymous chatting app. That was like very fun to build, but like I don't think it really worked for a number of reasons I could I could kind of go into. But there's that, you know, I worked on like some tutoring apps, which didn't really work. But yeah, there, there's a bunch of things that, that I've done. And like some things I've built which I never intended on on being incredible. I mean, Blink was one of these that I built. I didn't 
actually intend for it to be like a company. It was just a cool little tool that I was like, oh yeah, this is a nifty way that you can share details with each other. And so I, I think like with all these learnings, I've kind of learned a lot more about which ideas work and which ideas don't work and kind of how to really think about different projects and different startup ideas. I love that. And was there a, a framework or approach that you took to begin with, or how, I guess really what I'm getting at is how did that framework evolve as you were building these applications? Yeah. From each little project I've worked on, I think I've learned why it hasn't worked or why it has worked. And there was a really great framework that Brian Balfour wrote a, a few years ago. He wrote a series of blog posts on market product channel model fit. And I think this is like an incredible framework for thinking about how to build like a generational type of company. And his whole approach was basically that product market fit is like not the right way that you should think about building anything. You really need to get four fits to work. Mm. I remember we were on the, the phone the other week and I was like, yeah, I made a comment about product. You were like, no, 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 man. Yeah. It's, it's think about this Venn diagram. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Go on. I, I think, I think so many people, and I used to think this initially as well. It's like, Hey, once you get product market fit, then you've got a good idea. And it's like, that's not the right way to think about it. You really need to get all four fits to work. So market product fit, market model fit, model channel fit and channel product fit. And if you get all four fits to work, then you've probably got what is a good company or, or a company that can really scale over a long time. And, and I think if you don't get those four fits to work, you're going to run into a whole bunch of problems later on. And so the first fit is market product fit. This is basically just product market fit, except you'd say market product fit because you're trying to build a product that fits the market problem, not the other way around. And so to think about this, you'd really start off with identifying the user problems, what the problems are, how big they are who has the biggest pain points. And then you want to do a drill down analysis of why that's a problem until you get to kind of what the root cause issues are behind that problem. Once you do that, you can start to think of a bunch of solutions to this problem. Mm. And then you want to prioritize which solution you want to kind of go with. And once you think of what you think is a good solution, you need a really compelling value proposition or a hook that gets the user to experience the wow moment as quick as possible. And then once you figure out this hook, you want to create stickiness with the solution. So if there is a repetitive problem, there needs to be memorability to use your solution each time to solve that problem. So that's like the first fit. The second fit is market model fit. And this is fundamentally this idea that the number of customers multiplied by the annual average revenue per user is a big enough number that it justifies a venture capital valuation or investment. And so if you have a large number of customers, but a low annual average revenue per user, that could work. But if you have a low number of customers and a high annual average revenue per user, then that also works. So you want to kind of get that multiple to be high enough. The third fit is model channel fit. Fundamentally, the channels that you go after should be determined by the model. So if you have high annual average revenue per user, you should go for high customer acquisition cost options because otherwise there's going to be too much friction for the customer to get on board. So if you're enterprise SaaS and you're selling a product for 50K a year or 100K a year, you can't go for necessarily a viral option because someone's not going to self-sign up to that. They're going to want a salesperson to talk to. And on the flip side, if you have a low annual average revenue per user, you want to go for a low customer acquisition cost option because if you don't, you're going to be unprofitable. If you're only making like $100 per user per year and you go for a really high customer acquisition cost option, for instance, like an enterprise sales team, it's, it's not going to work financially. So that's model channel fit. And then the fourth fit is channel product fit. Now, the consensus view is that you build a product, then you test a bunch of channels, 
And then one of these channels works and you just double down on that. And that's the wrong way to think about it. You have control of the product, not the channel. And so you should tailor the product to fit the channel. And that's how you get channel product fit. So there's a bunch of different channels you could go after. For Blink, it's fundamentally virality. And so we've built the product in a way to make virality work for the product. And once you have all four fits, market product fit, market model fit, model channel fit, and channel product fit, then I think you're in a place where you can build a truly generational company. Mm. There's so many roads I can go down. <laughs> Why don't we start off with, so when you think about the word market, you're thinking about a problem for a customer. Yes. And the way that you described it, is this in order of priority for the way in which you were building Blink? So when I built Blink initially, I was pretty much just thinking, oh, this is a cool unlock, this QR code scanning from a native camera. I could build a, a way to share contact details with each other. And so that was really how I thought about it. Like, And so I built it pretty much as soon as I thought of the idea, you know, how I really thought about this over time and what really got me the confidence to actually do this full time was really figuring out what the whole fit was and figuring out the, the model part of this. Mm. Let's talk about that journey. So I believe you first built V1 in 2017. Yes. But you were working full time at Uber. So let's walk through some of the key events yep. that I guess unlocked you to leave Uber Eats and go full time on Blink. Yeah, for sure. So back in 2017, with iOS 11, Apple released QR code scanning from the native camera. So up until this point, you couldn't scan QR codes from your camera. You had to download like a QR code reader app. And that was released like October 2017. And then I built the product like very soon after that. I saw that this is a feature and I thought, I wonder what that unlocks. And then I realized that people at the time, some people scanned QR codes for business card purposes. And I was saying, well, what if you just put a QR code on your widget on your phone? Then that's probably a really easy way that you can share your details with people. So I built the product initially over a weekend. It was a super simple product. It was basically a form with a bunch of details you could add, and then it just added a QR code and you could connect that up to your widget. So that was the first version of the product. And I only told like a few people about this and it spread pretty well amongst iPhone users because iPhones could scan the QR code natively. It didn't really work with Android users. And so someone would, would share it with someone with an iPhone, they'd love it. They'd share it with another person with an iPhone, they'd love it. They'd share it with someone with an Android, it wouldn't work. And then they'd stop using the product. Mm. And so it kind of didn't really have as much push behind it to really grow. And then basically it took all Androids another like two years to be able to add QR code scanning into the native camera. And so it wasn't until late 2019 that Samsung enabled QR code ring from the native camera with their phones. And when that happened, Blink started to get a bit more traction because now it worked with Androids or anyone who got the new phone. And then COVID happened and now everyone knows how to use QR codes and everyone's familiar with them. And then Blink just really started to take off during that year. And during 2020, there were a few businesses that reached out and they basically said, hey, a lot of people at our company love Blink. They all use it. We just bought all these paper business cards for them. They don't want to use them, but we want to manage all these details from like a dashboard because everyone has a different version of the logo and everyone has like the wrong job title. And I said, that's really nice, but this is just a free tool. Sorry. And I basically told them that, you know, <laughs> That's not what the product was. You didn't get the product. And they said, hang on, we'll like, we'll pay you for this. And I said, hey, this is really interesting. So, so I basically realized I had a viral product with a bottom-up SaaS component to it. And so I didn't need to hire salespeople to be able to get business customers because these customers had already used the product, loved the product, and then upgraded themselves to this business product plan. And so I built the business product. I learned Angular, built it in about two weeks. And then soon we basically had 
an iPhone app, an Android app, and a web app. And then, you know, after a few customers got on board, I realized, hey, this actually has real traction. Left Uber, worked on this full-time, and then grew a lot really during 2021. And it really wasn't until I established that this had a really good model component to it, especially this like market model fit wasn't there. I didn't realize that this could be a billion dollar company or a Decacorn or some incredible company until I established that there was this bottom-up SaaS business component to it. And that's when it gave me the confidence to leave. Mm. And so if we think through the framework you mentioned earlier, yeah. when we think about market, we think about what's a problem. Yeah. And for you, that problem, as I understand it, was like, I'm really sick of these dog-eared business cards that I have to keep recycling every year, multiple times a year. So you built it over a weekend. And then there were certain events over time, including the technology unlock with QR codes being enabled on Androids, including COVID and that being a behavior change. And then at this point, when did you really start to see, I guess, that virality component kick off? Yeah. And let's go through that framework and what were those key lessons? Because it wasn't until like 2020 when you started to see that business model market fit, as you mentioned. Yeah. So I think fundamentally with Blink, it had traction amongst iPhone users, but it didn't have the traction with Android users. And the reason was that they could not scan the QR code quickly. And so there are a bunch of apps and digital business cards before Blink. The first one was Bump, which was like one of the first iPhone apps. Uh, I think it's launched in like 2008 or so. So really, really early on. And what happened with that is you basically bump two phones together and use an accelerometer in the phone to transfer the details, like transfer photos, contact cards, files, and so on. But the problem with that app and with a bunch of apps since then is that you both had to have the app for the transfer to take place. Otherwise, it was a very slow and clunky process, in which case you might as well just use paper Mm. because paper business cards are 100% reliable and they're also quick, but they're an absolute nightmare to manage and to carry around. Uh, So there's a lot of problems with them, but they actually solved the problem pretty well for a while. It was only when QR code scanning became native to the cameras that there was a quicker option and that was scanning the QR code, which really was unlocked with Apple's iOS 11. And that's what Blink took advantage of. And so when I established that, hey, this is like a really big unlock and I was able to really build this, it got significant traction, especially all throughout those years from, from 2017 or through 2020. And I think that once it had this Android component, then it really took off. And then the business component to it then became a really viable company. But yeah, I, I think virality there's kind of four things that virality needs and Blink was kind of lacking some of these and this is why it didn't really take off. The the four factors that I've learned that virality needs are the first is that you need a really short time to the aha moment. So you need to be able to get to the value proposition super quickly. For us, that's during the share of a card. The second thing, people need to be able to explain the product to someone else they've never met before or someone that they know quite closely within one sentence. Mm. And so it needs to be super quick to be able to explain the product to someone. The third thing is that there needs to be a really broad value proposition. And this is what Blink was missing initially. And so what that means is that the value needs to be applicable to a large percentage of that user's network, not just a small target group. And I remember very early on, Blink had traction with real estate agents and I got some advice from some people, which was, hey, you should just forget about every customer, just focus on real estate agents, just build the perfect product for them. 
And that's really terrible advice for someone who wants to build a viral product, because what that means is that if a real estate agent was to share it with someone who's a non-real estate agent, that person wouldn't take up the product and your viral kind of tree would stop there. And so you need to make it broad enough that it's applicable to more people that get on the product. So that's the third piece. And initially that was a problem for Blink because it didn't work with Androids. And so that's the third piece. And the fourth piece is that the product needs to get better the more of your network is on the product. So adoption curves start with early adopters, then mid adopters, then late adopters, then laggards. And the further to the right you go along that curve, the higher the bar of quality you need to get to. And so the quality of your product needs to scale somewhat proportionately to the number of people that get on through virality. Otherwise, you're going to have a really, your growth curve is going to do great for the early adopters and it's going to like stop and you're going to stop growing. And so with Blink, what we do is we make the sharing easier and quicker for people who have the app. You can share more information, like your profile picture, your logo, and so on. And also the information is live. So if I share my details with you, and then I update my details, I'll update in your phone in real time. And so the product gets inherently better the more people are on. So I think those four components are really important to, to make virality work for a product. I love that so much. And then I think going down the funnel, how do you think about retention in this context, like you can have all the virality in the world, but I guess in Bump's case, they miss that rule of retention. Yeah. Painful lesson. How have you taken that and used that insight into Blink? So I think fundamentally with Bump, I, I think this is why it didn't work. And, and I think it's that when you meet someone for the first time, you need that experience to be special. And if that experience is not special, then it kind of messes up that first interaction you have. And with Bump, you'd meet someone and then you'd say, hey, just here's my business card, I'll bump you. And then they say, I don't have the app. And then you need to wait for them to download the app and it just becomes mm. super awkward. And so Bump worked really <laughs> well for like, Bump works super well for like photo sharing, right? Because both people already knew each other. They could take the time to download the app. But meeting someone for the first time, it needs to be slick and reliable. It needs to be really quick. That's something that, that I think is like really important. And I think if you can make it really quick and really reliable and really memorable, then people are going to come back to your solution whenever they encounter that problem again. And for us, the problem is meeting someone for the first time and, and wanting to connect with them. And so... I think if you can make that experience really good every time, then yeah, people will, will stick with your product. And then as we go down further down the funnel, yeah. I'll continue that. Businesses started subscribing. How are they using the product? What problems are you solving? And I guess, how does it go from, hey, I'm a real estate agent to my entire real estate agency is now using the product? Yeah, for sure. So firstly, with the real estate agent point, our first customers that were just that love the product for real estate agents, but most of our customers are not real estate agents. So we have like a really broad group of customers. But yeah, as for how business users use the product, fundamentally, they're using it as an administration tool to be able to create and manage cards for people within their team. So let's say you have a company, 100 people in it or, or more. In the past, you used to send off the contact details and get paper business cards printed with this system, you can directly integrate into a directory system that you might have, or you can add the details manually. People's contact details can all be populated in these blink cards. The individuals within the team get the app or we do NFC cards. We do a bunch of things to do email signatures, any way that you would like share your information. And this information will be populated into this link profile, which can be then shared with people that they meet. And so it's fundamentally a great administrative tool to be able to you know, manage these details. And then when these people meet people, those recipients of the card can send back their information and that information can be populated into the Blink contact system and then exported to whatever CRM system you're using. And so we've got integrations on the directory side 
and the CRM side. And so what Blink is in the middle is it's this live identity layer. It's this place where you can manage and share like an aggregated view of who you are with anyone anywhere. Let's double click on that. So you mentioned NFC cards, email signatures, and we have digital business cards. Yeah. And now you've mentioned the live professional identity layer. Can you unpack how that works across those products? Sure. So I'll kind of step back and talk about how identity on the internet has changed. So really up until the Facebook era of companies, people were fairly anonymous on the internet. And then Facebook brought in this idea that you had your profile and you could share that with people. And I think Zuck said in an early interview that he believed that you were the one person and your whole life should, should all be you know, your work life is the same as your personal life and everything's the one thing. And Facebook was this kind of place to house who you were. And then LinkedIn came along. They said, well, no, actually your work profile is different to your personal profile. And so LinkedIn came about. And then later on, you had Snapchat, which said, well, actually your ephemeral self is different to your work self and your, and your kind of personal self. And then Instagram became this image-based way to, to represent yourself online. And so there became a fragmentation of identity on the internet and fundamentally different ways that you would want to represent yourself to people when you meet them, depending on the context. So if I meet someone because I'm trying to sell something to them, I might want to add my only link and I might want to add like a company website and email and phone number. Whereas if I meet just a friend, I might want to, you know, share my Instagram or my Facebook and so on. And so there's different ways that you might want to meet people over time. And so with Blink, you can do that. You can fundamentally share the version of yourself that you want someone to, to know about you when you first meet them. And you can share that through all the ways that you might meet them, which is through digital business cards, email signatures, virtual backgrounds. We have NFC cards. Some people like to tap and use NFC technology. And, and fundamentally, they're all kind of connected in this aggregated view, which is your Blink card, which is a really simple web page that you can access via a link with one call to action. And that call to action is save contact. Mm. And I would love for you to go further on what you mean by live. Sure. So when I say live, what I mean is if you think about the idea of contacts in your phone, they're fundamentally static. So the architecture through which contacts in your phone are created is, is fundamentally a storage-based system where once you meet someone, that information is in there and it doesn't really change unless you manually change it. And with Blink, because people are incentivized to update their information because they meet more people over time, the information on their Blink profile is going to be more up-to-date than in other places. It's also linked to other dynamic sources of identity, so your LinkedIn or, or other places. And so Blink is this aggregated view of your live identity. And so when you meet someone and you share your details with them and then you update your details, that can update in their phone in real time, which means that what we're basically able to do from that is create this live address book. And that's really useful for CRM systems. It's really useful for individuals who want to know updated information on people. And I think this is a piece of fabric on the internet that hasn't yet been created and, and we're doing that. And I think that's a really exciting kind of mission to, to strive towards. Totally agree. And how might a, a business view that through the administrative lens, like especially across email signatures and business cards? Yeah. So there's two ways that they can view it. So if they have individuals who meet people and, and those recipients uh, send back information to them, then they can view this in the dashboard in like the contact section. So there's like a CRM component and then they can export this to whatever CRM system they use. If it's HubSpot, Salesforce, we have a Zappy integration with a bunch of CRM systems. And so they can use that information wherever they do their business. And then on the sending side, they can create these profiles and they can share this information through digital business cards, email signatures, and everywhere else. And I I think the great thing with that is 
if you update your information in one spot, it'll update in a whole bunch of other spots, which makes managing your aggregated set of information about you just a whole lot easier. Mm. And you mentioned some fascinating pieces on how identity is fractured on the internet yeah. with good old Zucks. And I totally agree. And it's as if our identities are completely fractured across and almost siloed within these different platforms. Yeah. And you use the contacts book as your example, but it's also true online. Like our identity doesn't evolve until you post a photo, in which case you still have this book of who you were, but it's it's never live. It's it's always static. Yeah. And when did that sort of macro lens of the world come into your thinking along this journey? So when I first built this, as I said, I just wanted to build a really quick tool. So, so how I fundamentally thought of the idea is I was at Uber and Uber Eats changed their logo like three times in the year that I was there and my job title changed twice. And so I basically had like stacks of paper business cards on my desk and I said, <laughs> hey, this is broken. You know, Apple released this QR code scanning feature. I could probably use this to make a digital business card app. Mm. And so that was how it started. It just started as a tool. It became pretty clear early on, especially as this started to get traction, that it's not just a business card you're sharing. It's fundamentally an identity profile. And if you think about how you might share who you are with people, you'd think about the occasions that you share with them first. And business cards is like an in-person occasion. You send information by email as well. That's another way you might be introduced to someone. And then kind of the third way is through video calls. And so we added virtual backgrounds for video calls, email signatures for email, and then this digital business card product for in-person meetings with people. And so once I kind of realized that, the mission became share who you are with anyone, anywhere. And that's fundamentally what we're doing. As you start to build out these ways that you can share your information with people, you start to think, well, people are really updating this a lot. They're keeping it up to date because they're meeting more people. So we could really try to build this live identity layer, this place where information is always up to date and it stays in your phone up to date. And I think that's a really exciting thing. We've been like evolving on the mission. Like what does Blink actually solve for? I think Blink solves for connection. It makes the connection experience that you have with someone that you've never met before just way, way, way better. And if you think about how people connect with each other, it's a really important interaction because the first interaction that you have. And so it's a really important interaction to get right. And when you share your Blink card with someone, you're taking a risk and you're, you're basically saying, hey, see this new piece of technology. Oh, this is my card. These are my details. Mm. And because there's kind of heightened tension in that interaction, when it works, it's like a really magical experience. And I think that's what Blink's fundamentally solving for. It's making that first impression better and it's making it easier and better for people to connect so that they can form a business relationship or, or otherwise with each other. So you might use it if you're trying to sell something to them or you're just trying to connect with them for business purposes. And people use Blink because it is an easier and better way to connect with people. So that's what we're solving for, connection. I love that, man. It's like almost like the foundation of your first relationship with either a customer, investor, friend, yeah. employee, future employee. How do you want that first brick of that house that could be made? How does that end? Yeah. And that's a really special place to sit right in the middle at the intersection of that new relationship. Exactly. 
And I think it's just such a human interaction. I mean, think about how for all of human civilization, people have met each other and they've used different rituals to meet each other. It might be handshakes or fist bumps or whatever. Blink is the new version of that. Blink is the way that people will connect with each other for the first time in a really human way. And I think being part of that is a really special thing to be part of. Every time I use Blink, I never forget their name. <laughs> yeah. Because it makes the moment more memorable. And you've, obviously you've got the details. Yeah. And you get to see where and when you met them. It's great. And you can add notes about them. And in your phone, it's not just a name and a phone number. You can add a profile picture. You can add all sorts of links and other information. You can add colors to the card. There's all sorts of ways that you can have that contact be represented in your phone. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's a really special experience. So you mentioned referral loops. Are there any other loops that you're thinking about that are important to you, especially when you think about your product roadmap and I guess the order priority? Yeah. Think about the pirate metrics is always a great way to go about feature ideation and feature prioritization. And for us, there's two really important loops in our product. There's the referral loop to get new individual users. And then there's the bottom-up SaaS, bottom-up loop, basically, which is this idea that an individual will try the product and then a few people at the company will try it. And then the business will get on board and start a trial and then they'll add more cards over time. And then soon the whole company will be on. So that's like the second loop that we think about a lot. Like how do you make that a frictionless experience? And then the pirate metric loop is really just acquisition, activation, retention, revenue, referral, and then react, you know, acquisition again. And so thinking about features in terms of making the activation experience super easy, trying to make the sharing experience super easy, giving someone some sort of endorphin hit when they like share it with someone. So what we do is we just do a little haptic tap, which is kind of nice and little animation. So little things to make that experience slightly better. And really it's, it's all about just getting someone to that magic moment as quick as possible. So like I said, for virality to work, you need a short time to the wow moment. And so everything we think about is how do you just get there quicker? And that's how you really grow the product and, and you get people to really love the product. Mm. And when we're looking back in a year, or actually let me reframe that to looking back over the past year, what have been some lessons that you might not have shared yet that have been really important to your journey? I think a few lessons that I've kind of learned is when you start off a product, especially with product feedback, I think a great thing is to basically find a product advocate and let them talk to you. So there's a number of product advocates who use this product in the US who just have my phone number and they'll like text me you know, things or they'll call me at like 2am. And so there's a lot of advocates who, who have this product and who really love it and then give me really honest feedback. So I think that's like a really important thing, having those people who are able to give you this feedback as well as just, you know, tell you what works and what doesn't work and how people experience the product because they're going to be the people that share your product the most. And so if you can make them the happiest, then your product's going to share a lot. So that's like mm. one thing I'd say is really important. Another thing that I think is like really important is to say no to a lot of features that you think of. So with Blink, I've intentionally not extended the product to be overly complicated. And I see a lot of products just get really complicated. So rather than making it about share anything with anyone, we've made it specifically about share who you are with anyone. And that's because if you go down the path of making it too broad, you can run into problems where it becomes an average product for a lot of people and you don't have as much of the stickiness and, and you really want someone to be able to explain the product to someone that they've never met before within a sentence. And so that's like a really important thing, nailing down on that. Yeah, I think those are kind of two big lessons that, that I've learned. You spoke about not wanting to make it overcomplicated. Yeah. Oftentimes, Blink just seems so simple 
and so intuitive that it's a bit ridiculous. But on the flip side, like talk about how hard it is to design for intuition. (laughs) It, it It is really, really hard. I think simple products are harder to design for than more complicated products. And the reason is that there's so much temptation to go after really complex features or really custom things that the people ask for. And you need to be thinking constantly, is this going to make the product something that someone has to explain to someone else in two sentences? And if so, don't do it. Like you need it to be as simple as possible and you need to make a first time user have just an amazing experience. I think fundamentally, if you think about that, you're going to be in a way better position because people understand what it is and they understand that it's not going to get too complicated for them to show something for the first time. So most of our users share their product with people when they're at a networking event. So they might've had a few beers or whatever, and they've got a beer in one hand and the phone in the other. And so you need it to work with one hand. And then you're asking someone you've never met before to bring out their phone to scan it. And so it just needs to be super quick and super simple. If you make it too complicated, it's going to be a really average experience for these two people meeting each other. You're growing incredibly quickly. How are you managing? And I guess, how would you compare your time today to a year ago? Like if I was to look at your calendar, like how has it changed year on year? Yeah. So a year ago, I was coding the iOS app, the Android app. I was working on designing the product. I was trying to hire people. I was answering support tickets. I was doing these like four hour long calls from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. with customers. (laughs) It was like, I was doing everything. And like, you have to do that when you start. But right now, I mean, I'm not coding anymore, which is, I think, a good step in the right direction. I'm spending a lot of time on product strategy, on growth strategy, as well as like hiring and really thinking about culture. That's like mainly what I'm, what I'm spending a lot of time doing, you know, trying to build the the company, which I think is going to build the product the best. That's what I'm, I'm spending the most time on. And in particular on that, I'm really trying to build what the values are of what the company is and trying to form what those are so that they carry out through the organization. What's one value that you're really proud of? I'm really a big believer in in being truth obsessed and kind of a growth mindset around people. And I think that it's very easy to make up a reason as to why you do something, but you need to constantly be seeking the truth behind anything, what the user problem is, why something did or didn't work. You need to be able to learn from it and take actionable insights from those to be able to progress as a person. And trying to instill that in the organization is really important. With that comes the idea of best idea wins. And that's like something that I really believe in. So I'm not always right on ideas and some people can come with better ideas. And so something that I've really instilled and and I really want to carry through with Blink is this idea that if you've got a better idea, you should challenge what that is. And and people should have an informed debate, which is non-personal, super objective, totally on what the current matter is. And they should be able to have this thought, which is best idea wins. And so, you know, trying to remove the politics from everything, I think is a really great pillar to, to work around. When Blink is the next great grand slam business out of Australia, what does it look like in 10 years time? Sort of paint the picture for us, I guess, without giving too much about the, the product roadmap. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think like as time goes on, we're definitely going to focus on the contact space. So like I said, Blink is about sharing who you are with anyone, anywhere. And you do that through digital business cards, email signatures, virtual backgrounds, whoever else you meet people. With that information, you can start to build in a great contacts app or a great contact system to be able to hold an an account of the people you meet, when you meet them, where you meet them, some notes on them and so on. And I think that once you can make the first interaction great, 
then we can start to think about, you know, what, what happens next? What happens with that interaction in the second interaction and the third interaction? And so I think that you can really go down this contacts path, you know, whether that's integration to CRM companies or updating information to keep the information always up to date. There's all sorts of things, but fundamentally we're trying to build for a business customer and an individual customer in trying to make contacts a really futuristic and powerful thing. And this layer hasn't been invented on the internet yet. And so I think we're in the best position to do it. Love it. If you haven't downloaded Blink, go and download it. Jared, thank you so much for joining me. That was epic. Thanks, Mason. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you left with more energy than when you started, we'd be super grateful. If you liked, subscribed, left a review, even shared it with a friend. In case you want to keep in touch, share feedback or even a pitch deck, I'll leave my Blink card in the show notes for you to get in touch. Thank you so much for listening once again, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Godspeed.